0: Well, church, your singing was fabulous today. Thank you. Open your Bibles up to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew 3. Last week, we began chapter 3. In that process of beginning here in chapter 3, we were introduced to a man by the name of John the Baptist. John was the last in a long line of Old Testament prophets sent by God to his ancient people Israel to plead with them, to preach to them, to draw them back to their God and their Savior. We introduced this man John the Baptist last week. In the process of introducing him, I said to you that we would, in the next couple of weeks, transition from the man to his message. And so that's what we'll begin this morning. We will begin to look at the message of John the Baptist. John burst on the scene like a desert wind, appearing out of nowhere. Preaching in preparation for the arrival of Messiah the King. You see it in verse 1, Matthew 3. It says in those days John the Baptist came or arrived preaching. How do we know he came? We know he came because when he arrived his mouth was open and he was preaching. Preaching. And he was preaching a message in preparation for the coming Messiah, verse 2. Very simple message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Initially, John's message was quite popular among the multitudes, among the peoples. Down in verse 5, Matthew indicates for us, That Jerusalem was going out to him and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan. The crowds were flowing out to the wilderness area to John to be baptized by him. Initially he was quite popular. But not with all. The religious establishment of Judaism, they were not so keen on this desert prophet. In fact, down in verse 7 you get a a hint, a foreshadowing of the conflict that would come to him and to the one whose message he was proclaiming. Where John says to them in verse 7, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? That, by the way, is not a good way to make friends. So initially popular with the multitudes, but in conflict with the religious authorities and establishments of his nation. His message was an interesting message. It was a simple message. It was a basic ethical command repent, built upon an eschatological reason, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It was a message of personal application. As John was commanding them to repent, He was commanding them to repent of personal sin. We see that if you'll flip to your right over to Mark chapter 1 and verse 4. John the Baptist, it says, appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. So it was a message that had an individual application salvation and deliverance from personal sin. But it didn't end there. It included a a message of promise and proclamation of a national salvation for his people, Israel. That through the establishment of Messiah's kingdom, they would be delivered from their enemies and all who sought their undoing. Luke shows us that in Luke chapter 1 verse 71, Luke 1 and 71. This is a prophecy, by the way, given under inspiration of the Spirit of God by John's own father, Zacharias. Verse 71, Luke chapter 1. This one will, the one to come after him, will bring salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. So John had a twofold message in in preparation for the coming Messiah. It was a message of deliverance from personal sin and it was a, a message of deliverance is coming for the nation as a whole. A national salvation, if you like. These Two ideas are essential to understand and to, to hold intention. Messiah's kingdom is a physical kingdom. A physical kingdom entered into by spiritual means. A physical kingdom entered into by spiritual means. Jesus himself makes it clear in John chapter 3 and verse 3 speaking to Nicodemus, a a leader among the Pharisees. When Jesus says to him in verse 3 of John 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born from above or born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It is a very physical kingdom, a place where there will be salvation from their enemies and those that hate them, deliverance from the oppression of the Gentile nations. Yet, to enter into that great and glorious kingdom, one must come with a humble heart. One must be born again. It is through personal, spiritual salvation that one enters into the physical realm of Messiah's kingdom. That's the message John is preaching back here in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 2. If I could say it this way. And I will say it this way frequently in our time in Matthew together. There is no physical salvation without first spiritual salvation. Physical salvation depends upon spiritual salvation. One presupposes the other. Messiah's kingdom is a physical place entered into through spiritual means. We dare not forget... That twin reality. So this morning, Matthew chapter 3 and verse 2. Let's take a look in greater detail at John's message. I want to zero in on it. And I want to look carefully at it. And to do that, we will select but the first word of his preaching. It seems only right if he preaches a short message that I should preach several long messages in order to explain what he meant by his short message. And the reason that's important, by the way, it's not just a preacher's prerogative, although it is that, to be sure. The reason it's important is because there is so much pre-understanding loaded into John's very short message. In order to get the full weight, the full impact of his message, this, this desert wind that begins to blow hotly upon the ancient people, one needs to understand the background that leads up to it. So this morning, I want to just zero in on this word "repent." I want to zero in on the word "repent," repentance. What is it all about? To do that, we need to to come up to some basic definitions, basic definitions, and I want to I want to do this by. Asking a series of questions. So, so basically, I've got three questions. I'm going to ask you or ask an answer as we go through this. Three questions. The whole message is structured around these three questions. The first question is, "What is repentance? What is repentance?" That is the first question. Now, to answer it, there's some some terms we need to define out of the chute. Okay, so a little bit of academics, and then we'll pull it together. The first term that I wanted to find with you is the word remorse. We need to understand the word remorse. The Greek word that is, that is translated remorse or regret is used six times in the New Testament. It's not a widely used word, but it, but it is there. It is a word, and I can give you the Greek word, but for most of you it wouldn't matter, so I won't bother. It's an emotional word, that you do need to know. The word translated remorse or regret is is an emotional word. That is, it is a word that carries with it the idea of sorrow or grieving over a decision or an outcome in one's life. So it talks about sorrow. It, It communicates the idea of grieving over something we have done or not done. Something that has come upon us. Now, sometimes... Remorse or or regret will produce a change of behavior. That can occur, to be sure. And sometimes it doesn't. It's not guaranteed. It's possible that if you get pulled over for speeding on the freeway and they slap you with a large enough fine that you will experience such a level of emotional sorrow as your bank account is emptied Such a level of regret that it's possible that you will never speed again. That's possible. It's not likely. It's not likely. But it is possible. Sometimes remorse actually produces changes of behavior. But it's not certain, to be sure. So we have the idea of remorse. Secondly, we have the idea of penance. Penance. Penance is a a word that comes from the Latin that means penalty or punishment. So when you think of penance, you need to think of penalties and punishment. They go together. Reformed theologian from the last century, Louis Burkhoff, provides some helpful words with regard to this notion of penance. And he writes the following. And I quote, Penance is an activity Performed to try to atone for one's sins. It is an activity performed to try to atone for one's sins. Typically, it is done based upon a sorrow over sin. Moreover, satisfaction consists in the sinner's doing penance. That is, enduring some painful or performing some difficult or distasteful task in order to satisfy sin. So it has the idea of you do something in order to satisfy the sin. Maybe we could illustrate it this way. Perhaps the Spirit of God might bring conviction upon your heart for how how greedy you are and how little you put in the offering plate when it goes by. And so you, you say to yourself, I, I have sorrow over this, and, and therefore I'm going to do something about it. And what I'm going to do is, from now on, whenever the offering plate goes by, I'm going to make sure I put money in the offering plate. That's penance. That's penance. That's, a, that's the idea of doing something or enduring something in order to take away the guilt of the sin. Whereas the Apostle Paul would have us, with regard to, to contributing into an offering plate or, or giving unto the Lord, he says in Second Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 7 that we are to give out of a cheerful, overflowing heart. And indeed, he says we're to give in a, in a hilarious kind of fashion. That is, we are so filled with joy, the opportunity to give. Now the plate goes by, some people put it in out of penance, some people put it in out of joy. And there's a world of difference. There's a world of difference. So we have remorse. We have penance. By the way, God rejects penance. God absolutely rejects penance. Hosea chapter 6 and verse 6, God makes it very clear. He writes, or he says, and I quote, I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than in burnt. Offerings. That is, God would rather have, he wants our hearts, not our outward actions or activities, even good and religious ones. But what happens is, is people think they can atone for their sin by their own self-effort. But it can't be done regardless of how hard one tries, regardless of how difficult the task one undertakes, regardless of how externally good the activity might be, regardless of whether the fact that we participate in God-prescribed activities. It's a self-deceiving idea. Self-deceiving. Beloved, it's not only unbelievers that fall into the trap of attempting to self-atone. Believers fall into the same trap. Believers fall into that exact same trap of, of somehow thinking that what I do for God will alleviate the guilt I feel. And that my relationship with God will be restored by what I do. Believers fall into this same trap, the trap of penance. So we have remorse, we have penance, and then we have, John's message, repentance. Repentance. The most common Old Testament word that describes repentance, and it it appears over a thousand times in the Old Testament, so this concept is woven into the Old Testament, It contains the idea, and I quote, of of an imagery of a person doing a turnabout, a reversal. And critical to the turnabout, and and we need to get this idea, critical to the turnabout, if it is to be true repentance, is that the direction toward which one turns has to be to Yahweh, to God. To be biblical repentance in an Old Testament point of view is that one must turn and one must turn to God, to Yahweh. Another writer says, and I quote, the term repentance implies a conscious moral separation and a personal decision to forsake sin and enter into fellowship with God. A a. Conscious moral separation and a personal decision to forsake sin and enter into fellowship with God. So it's this turning, turning away from sin and turning to God. It's in a thousand places in the Old Testament. Here's just one. Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 30. When you are in distress, speaking to the nation here and all these things have come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and listen to his voice. Return is the key word. You will return to God. That is, you will turn and turn back to God. The New Testament picks up on this and carries it forward. There are two words that are used in the, the New Testament to speak of repentance, but, but one predominates. In its noun form, metanoia is the, is the Greek word. It's used 20 times. The verb form is metanaeo. It means to repent. So you have repent in the verb form and repentance in the noun form. It's used over 50 times combined in the New Testament. This This word, metanoia or metanao is is a combination of two Greek words. And and we'll just say this because I think it's helpful to understand. These two words, one is is nous, which which carries with it the idea of the intellect, first and foremost. But not only the intellect, or not only the mind, but, but it interblends with the moral and effectual nature of a person. So it's how they think, and it's what they desire what draws their heart, what they love. And meta, which carries with it the idea of a change of direction. So it's a metanoia, maybe you've heard this, repentance, it means a change of thinking or a change of mind. But it it includes with not only a change of thinking, it includes a change of affections that go with it. It carries with it the idea of of what you think about and, and what you desire. And that changes, changes. So if we, we pull all this biblical data together to, to understand this term repentance, we find out that it's, it's composed of essentially three elements. Let me give them to you. Three elements. They are, number one, intellectual. Repentance is intellectual. Number two, repentance is Emotional. Number three, repentance is volitional. It's intellectual, it's emotional, and it's volitional. That is, that it includes the mind, it includes the affections, and it includes the decision making or the will. All of those elements combined are essential. If you are missing any one of those three elements, we do not have repentance. It's a package. The intellectual is engaged in the sense that it's a, a, recognition, a recognition that sin is offensive to God and worthy to be punished. So it's a basic understanding of the, the offensiveness of sin to God. It's intellectual. The emotional aspect is, is a sense of remorse over the, the offense and a desire to make it right. So it grips the heart, it grips the emotions. And the volitional aspect is, is the determination to turn away from sin and turn to the path of righteousness. Back to God, if you will. So all of this has to be engaged. We have to understand what sin is and and why and how it's offensive to God. We we must feel great sorrow over our sin and and a determination and a desire to make that right. And finally, a determination to, to turn from the path of sin and to the path of righteousness. And all of that together defines repentance. So when John the Baptist comes speaking here in the wilderness to say, repent, all of that is loaded into that word. These elements, are, they, are, they are interrelated to each other and they are essential. If you're missing any one of the three, you do not have repentance. You have something less than repentance. First question, what is repentance? Second question, what does repentance look like? What does repentance look like? Let's assume the three elements are, are in play Together, and we've got true repentance. Well, what would it look like? Illustrate it. God is a great illustrator. And so He does just that for us in Psalm 51. So I will turn you back to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. The background of this psalm is 2 Samuel chapter 12. Where the prophet Nathan has confronted the king of Israel, David, with the awful reality of his adultery and his murder of Uriah. In this psalm, we we can observe these three essential elements of repentance. They are illustrated for us here in David's psalm, Psalm 51. Begins in verses 1 and 2, and we're going to move through this very quickly. But it begins, the intellectual aspect begins in verses 1 and 2, Psalm 51. David writes, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. It begins by David pleading with God to have mercy upon him, the first part of the verse, verse 1. Be gracious to me. But then David goes on in the second half of verse 1 and in verse 2 to acknowledge the grievous nature of his sin. His intellect is involved here. He understands what he has done. We see it because David uses three different words to describe what he is guilty of here. You notice the word transgression at the end of verse 1. Transgression. Transgression is the idea of of breaking loose or tearing away from God. So to transgress is to to deviate or to break loose or to tear away from the moral boundaries of God. David goes on in verse 2. He says, wash me from my iniquity. Iniquity is a a perversion or a, a distortion or a misdeed. And then finally... He says, Cleanse me from my sin. And the idea here is a a deviation from that which is well pleasing to God. So he uses these three terms to describe the heinous nature of his crime against God. David understood. At this point, David understood the heinous nature of his offense. His intellect is engaged. Secondly, his emotions. David is now engaged emotionally with regard to his transgression. Verse 4. <clears throat> Verse 4. Against you and you only I have sinned and have done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. David's emotions are now engaged. He, he's, he has abhorrence for his sin and he expresses it there and he abhors the dishonor he has brought upon god he do, he doesn't focus really on the effect on other people do you notice that he doesn't say that i sinned against bathsheba or i sinned against the family of uriah or i sinned against the people of israel he doesn't really focus on any of that he focuses on the one who he has truly offended that is god his creator he sees his sin as ultimately directed against God himself. Verse 4, against you and you only have I sinned. He's, he is zeroed in. He Further, he says that God is fully justified in, in whatever punishment he brings upon him. David says, I'm guilty. I, I have no excuse. All the consequences of my sin are well deserved, whatever it will be. Whatever you will do, you're justified. second half of the verse. you are blameless when you judge me. Whatever you choose to do, oh God is right in light of my offense it is this, It is this focus on the, on the wrong being done to God and, and the resultant sorrow or, or remorse that, that Helps David, it prevents David from falling into the trap of, of dreading the punishment. Instead, it helps him to hate and abandon the sin. His perspective and his emotions are, are rightly engaged. Third is volition. His volition, his, his will, his decision-making, if you, if you will, is, is drawn in here in verses 7 and following. Where he says, verse 7, Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to wear to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and, and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, you go, thou God of my salvation. Then my tongue will, will joyfully sing of your righteousness. He's, he is pleading for his restoration before God. He rejects any thought of penance, verses 16 and 17. He says, you don't delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You're not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Oh, God, you will not despise. Oh, God, if there was something I could do, I would do it. But I know there is nothing that I can do. There is no penance here. It is to turn back to you. And I need you by your spirit to draw me back. We can understand from this psalm that David has completely rejected his sin. He understands it to to be an entire affront against God. It is absolutely heinous in the sight of God. And so David offers neither excuse nor does he attempt to cover it up with good works. Instead, he throws himself on the mercy of God. He pleads with God to intercede, restore him back to his fellowship, to fellowship. My friends, this is, a, this is a picture, this is an illustration of repentance. This is what repentance is like. It must engage us at all of these levels of our being. It's acknowledgement, it's remorse, it's turning. And if we're missing any one of those, we do not have biblical Repentance. What is repentance? What does it look like? Third, how can I help someone who has sinned? How can I help someone now? With this new understanding, how can I help someone who has sinned? Let me see if I can lay this out. This is how you can help someone, and this is how you can help yourself. We need to begin with an accurate diagnosis. All prescriptions of treatment begin with good diagnoses, right? we don't diagnose the problem, we're not capable of prescribing the appropriate cure. So we need to begin to, to diagnose the problem. Now, there's something we know about the human heart, according to Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 9. It is absolutely deceitful and wicked. It lies to us constantly. And we must know that. We must reckon with the fact that the heart is wicked and it is deceptive. What that means is that unless the Spirit of God intercedes to bring about the gift of repentance, it will not occur. One can proceed through the prescription, if, if you like. One can take ten days' worth of the medicine. And there will be no cure if we are merely going through an external series of, of events. It begins, it's a, it's a spiritual thing, it begins with the work of the Spirit of God. In Second Timothy chapter 2 and verse 25, it, we are told that it is a gift from God. Now what that means is that if God by His Spirit grants repentance, then we need to begin by praying. It begins with prayer. We must beseech the God of mercy to grant us the gift of repentance. But it does not end there. There is still the, the, the requirement for obedience. Repentance is a fruit. In fact, in Matthew chapter 3, you'll see in verse 8, Where John, speaking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he says, Bring forth fruit in keeping with repentance. That is, if the tree is good, it will bring forth good fruit. Make the tree good or make the tree bad. Good trees bring forth good fruit. And so it is a spiritual thing brought about by the power of the Spirit of God, yet it is at the same time a requirement of obedience. It is a fruit. So we have to hold those intention. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Paul holds them intention for you there. So let's get an accurate diagnosis. It begins by asking questions. Questions prick the conscience. Accusations harden the heart. Let me say it again for you. Questions prick the conscience the conscience, accusations harden the heart. So we begin by asking questions. We question a a person with regard to their attitude towards sin. We might ask a question something like this. Do you recognize that, that you have violated God's holy standard? They recognize they've violated God's holy standard. We need to ask questions question that would draw that out. We need to know, is their is there attitude one of, I made a mistake? I've made a mistake. Or, or, I'm sorry for all the hurt that I've brought upon myself and my family. See, if it's, I've made a mistake, then we're, then we're in the remorse category. Or if it's, a, I'm sorry for all the hurt I brought upon everyone, and it doesn't go beyond that, it has a horizontal focus, we're still in the remorse category. We need to go beyond that. We need to help someone ferret out the reality that their sin is first and foremost against a holy God. It is first and foremost against a holy God. and So, so we can begin by asking some questions. By the way, God does it this way is exactly how God does it. So you can start with a question like this. What have you done? Genesis chapter 4 and verse 10. We won't turn there. You can check it out on your own. What have you done, Cain? Or here's another one. What does God's word say about what you have done? What does God's word say about what you have done? Another one. Why was what you did wrong? To understand that. Why was it wrong? Why have you done what you've done? What have you done? Why have you done it? Genesis 4-7. What does God think about what you have done? What do you think God thinks about what you have done? You begin to bore in, to probe, to ask questions, that the Spirit of God will prick the conscience and begin to draw out the truth. During this phase, it's it's important to be teaching the Scriptures at the same time so so that we inform a person's conscience with regard to, to exactly what God thinks about their sin. So when the question is asked is, what do you think God thinks about what you have done? You, you draw out that, the answer that they think and then we open the scriptures together and show them what God thinks. Because it's likely what they think God thinks and what God really thinks probably don't line up. Most of us overestimate our righteousness and underestimate God's holiness. We need to help someone understand that their offense is primarily against God. Even if no one else is hurt, even if no one else knows their offenses against God, God knows and God is offended. Now, as this process of of drawing out goes on, it's usually you can tell whether now the person is in a in a place of of just sorrow and remorse That it's driven by their own fears, their own wanting to avoid consequence, that sort of thing. Or whether there's really now the beginning of a spirit-driven understanding and regret of their sin. They understand God's reputation has been damaged. That their sin is against Him. And it's it's not the horizontal that's the problem. The next stage is to is to question the person about what they've done or what they're planning to do in order to make themselves to make it right between them and God. What are you going to do with this? Now that you now that you understand the offense, what are you going to do about it? This is the stage by the way where where penance comes in. And this is the stage where many of us regularly short circuit repentance even the children of god we settle for penance we don't get all the way to repentance what are you going to do about it what are you going to do about it well see pastor what i'm going to do is is i'm going to participate in an increasing level of religious activity that's what i'm going to do i'm going to start attending bible studies One, two, three a week. Lots of Bible studies. I'm going to come to every prayer meeting. Every time there's a prayer meeting, I'm going to be there. I'm going to to read my Bible more. I'm going to get into the Word. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to become more active in church life. I'll, I'll start volunteering for things and so forth. I'm going to become more active in the church. I am going to amp up my level of religious activity. That's what I'm going to do. See, if that is the thinking, you are now on the track of penance, penance. All I need to do is become more outwardly religious, and that will resolve the problem of my sin. Now, I know that we wouldn't vocalize it that way. We would never come to one and say, well, I'm going to self-atone by coming to prayer meeting." We wouldn't, we wouldn't say that. We're too well-schooled in the Scriptures. But we would frequently substitute that. We would substitute that. We might say, I'm going to try harder. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to try harder to avoid this sin. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to, I'm going to get someone to hold me accountable. That's what I'll do. I'm going to find an accountability partner. Somebody who will, who will follow me around 24-7. That's what I'll do. I'm just going to pray about it, Pastor. That's what I'll do. I'll just pray about it. To one degree or another, all of these are infected with penance. And to the extent that penance is involved, repentance is shortchanged. My friends, I think we need to repent of our repenting. We need to repent of our repenting. Now, at this stage... It's critical that we show the person why these efforts, many of which are good and helpful. Reading the Bible, serving someone, the people of God, praying, all of these things are good and helpful. But we need to help them understand that they are inadequate in and of themselves to solve the problem of sin. Merely reading our Bible every day will not solve the problem of our sin. So we have to, we have to walk them through the spiritual teaching on repentance. We have to walk them through that and, and the indispensable need that they have to acknowledge, they have to hate, and they have to abandon their sin and turn to God. And if they short-circuit that along the way, then they have not repented. And if they have not repented, then the breach of the relationship still exists. So we need to explain the process of turning from sin involves more than just a change of mind. It also has to include a change of behavior. We must change the way we think, we must change the way we feel, and we must change the way we behave. And they're all required as one package. In the words of the New Testament, Galatians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 4, we must put off and put on, right? We must put off those things that characterize the old and fallen man and we must replace them. We must put on corresponding deeds of righteousness. Put off and put on. We must reject the the fruit of the flesh and we must conform to the fruit of the Spirit. While this is happening, we must remember that we are not making amends for our sin. We are not covering them up. We are confessing them, we are renouncing them and then by faith we are we are repatterning our lives so that we do not cater to sin. That's Paul's message in Romans chapter 6 verses 11 to 13 you can see it yourself. Romans 6 11 to 13. My friends, listen to this. We were saved by grace through faith. We Walk by grace through faith. It is the gospel that saves us, both historically and present tense and future. It is always the gospel embraced by faith. It is the doorway into our relationship with God. It is the means by which we walk in that relationship with God. So as we are repatterning our lives, as we are putting off the old man, putting on the new man, it is done in the environment and atmosphere of the gospel. As the, as the oxygen-rich environment of the gospel prevails, sin's weeds shrivel. They shrivel. They lose strength. We must preach the gospel to ourselves regularly. Regularly regularly rehearse it remind yourself of it become absolutely conversant in the gospel a sinner alienated from god deserving eternal condemnation reserved for the devil and his angels in a place called hell And yet, God, in His love and mercy and grace, has reached out to those in rebellion and has slaughtered His own Son in their place, that by faith they might embrace His gift of His Son, that they would become His children. And that relationship would be reconciled. The power of the resurrected Jesus Christ. This is what we must rehearse to ourselves regularly. A sinner saved by grace. True repentance is active. True repentance is active. This is not a passive process. This is an active process. By the way, it reveals itself. 1 Thessalonians 1.9 Turning from idols to serve the living God. 1 Thessalonians 1.9 how do we know the Thessalonian church repented? Paul says they turned from their idols to embrace the living God. 1 Corinthians chapter six, verses nine to 11. How do we know repentance is real? It, it manifests itself in abandoning a wicked and immoral lifestyle. Such were some of you, Paul says. Luke chapter three and verse 11. Repentance manifests itself in in sharing food with a poor man. It's only by turning to God that we turn away from evil. When the prodigal son repented, what did he do? When the prodigal son repented, he didn't merely leave the pig pen, he did that. He left the pig pen to be sure, but he returned to the father's house and, and he humbly cast himself upon the mercy of the father. He said, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your slaves. Understand I have no claim on you. No claim at all. It's all these cases and, and more also that the, the words of the prophet Isaiah ring true. Isaiah 55. Six and following. The prophet writes, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let them return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God and he will abundantly pardon For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as far as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Let the wicked forsake his way and turn to the Lord his God. Let me leave you with a couple of closing thoughts. A couple of closing thoughts here. First, I said it earlier, repentance, repentance is a gift of the Spirit of God. We must never forget that. Repentance comes by grace from the Spirit of God Himself. So we must seek it in dependence upon Him. We must humble our heart before Him. We must call out to Him to help us. Secondly, when we forget, when we, when we stop relying on Him, we may well find ourselves slipping back into the same old patterns. I don't want to leave you somehow thinking that repentance, all I need to do is repent once and sin is forever gone. Or oh, if it was only that way. And I suppose in one sense I could say it is. If you will repent and receive the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved, and it will guarantee your eventual glorification and removal of all of sin. But for now, it's a hand to hand fight. And we win, and sometimes we lose. And let me just say this we win when we walk in dependence upon the Spirit of God, we lose when we rely on the strength of our own flesh. It is a spiritual endeavor. May God grant grace to His children to truly repent and to walk in the power of the Spirit. Let's pray. Our Father, we we thank You for the gift of repentance. And we recognize that it is your gift and that it is only available through you. And if we do not depend upon your spirit, if we do not humble our hearts and by faith embrace your word, we will settle for remorse or for penance, both of which will leave us in the end woefully short. A sorrow that the Apostle Paul says that leads unto death. There is a sorrow that leads unto life, our Father. It is the sorrow that leads to repentance, a godly sorrow. We pray, O Lord, that you would help us to discern and distinguish between the two of them, both in our own lives and in the lives of those who are our friends and our loved ones who are struggling with sin. I pray that you would help us to be skilled workmen in the Word, be able to take them to the truth, that your spirit might inform their conscience from the truth and and that there they might know deliverance. O oh Lord, working your people today, those of us who, who struggle with certain sins that continue to drag us down, O oh Lord, may today be a new day. May you grant victory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.